You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 18, verse 24. We're going to go through chapter 19, verse 10. If you were here last week, we kind of paused this verse-by-verse series through the book of Acts in order to kind of reflect and commemorate and to give thanks to God for what He has done in our church family. If you're visiting with us or you're new here, we just celebrated two years of existence as a church family, and so we paused and gave thanks to the Lord for all that He has done. But today, we find ourselves turning back to the book of Acts Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. So let me read God's word for us. We'll pray, and then we'll get started together this morning. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before, uh, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may your word work in coordination with your Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our lives. Father, to help us to become discerning to help us to become wise unto salvation. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that as your word is preached, Lord, that, Holy Spirit, you would use it for the building up of your church and for the advancement of the gospel and for the saving of souls. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if the southeastern United States is called the Bible Belt, Wilson, North Carolina might as well be its buckle. Right, this is where we live, Wilson, North Carolina. And even though cultural Christianity seems to be slowly fading away in the South, we still feel this tension of difficulty when it comes to doing gospel ministry, sharing the gospel with people in a region like ours where at least most people still claim some sort of affiliation with Christianity. I've grown up in the Southeast all my life, and and I can attest that one of the great challenges of ministry in the Bible Belt is trying to sort out the confusion wrought by cultural Christianity. So as we share the gospel here in this context, we have to help people understand not just what the gospel is, although that's part of it, but also just what a Christian is. What does it mean to be a Christian? Because, of course, you can check the box on your, on your survey marked Christian, but that doesn't make you a Christian, does it? So we have to confront, as, as Christians doing ministry in this Bible Belt context, we have to confront cultural Christianity with the biblical teaching on the new birth and the true and reliable fruits that come from someone who is truly converted truly transformed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So sadly, many churches have only added to that confusion in this culturally Christian context in which we live. They've added that confusion by, by adding careless membership practices, which tends to put the stamps, the church's stamp of authenticity, upon many people who are actually spiritually deceived and unconverted. I fear that many churches simply want a huge crowd, no matter what it takes, even if most in their fold are goats rather than sheep. And I have found this especially difficult, not just dealing with cultural Christianity, but but dealing with sloppy membership practices, but also just because of the pervasive influence, at least in our area in eastern North Carolina, of free will denominations who tend to produce people that are incredibly confused about their spiritual status, often bouncing back and forth between heaven and hell at any given stoplight, right? And and there's this constant fear that that my security of salvation is, is based on my performance, my ability to live the Christian life. And I remember talking with one 70 year old lady in Eastern North Carolina who grew up in with theology like this, and who was constantly anxious, constantly anxious over her salvation. And over her life, after getting to hear her story, she had been baptized over five different times, and she was anxious for me to baptize her again because she was in fear that she didn't really know the Lord, and she wasn't really converted. So as we look at our situation today, there's a confluence of factors that generates so much confusion over conversion. You've got the vestiges of of cultural Christianity. You have sloppy church membership practices. You have harmful theology that confuses people. And more than ever, I think there is a need in the church, in our area, in, in Christianity today, for recovering the Bible's teaching on conversion. 
What does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to be born again? So our passage today from the book of Acts, Acts 18, verse 24, going into chapter 19, we, we see that this passage helps us in the work of soul care, caring for the souls of people. In the case of Apollos, we, we see, we find a confused believer who needs correction and discipleship. And in the case of the 12 men in Ephesus, we find religious, almost Christians, who need conversion. Both situations, I think, are helpful in helping us discern between how do we identify those who are merely immature in the faith versus those who are unconverted and might appear to be in the faith. So here's the sermon summary of what I hope God's word will help us in this morning, that we must aid immature believers in teaching them the faith, and we must confront the unconverted with the gospel. We have to aid immature believers in teaching them the faith and confront the unconverted with the gospel. So let's begin by thinking through the case of Apollos this situation that we sometimes find ourselves in where we discover that there's an immature Christian who needs teaching. So chapter 18 largely marks the start of Paul's third missionary journey. A large portion of that journey will take up time in Ephesus. But before Luke tells us of Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus, he's getting there, he first tells us about this guy named Apollos. Apollos is a, a Jew from Alexandria. And Alexandria, if you know anything about the ancient world, it was an intellectual and educational bastion of the ancient world, largely known for its gigantic library, the library at Alexandria. And so in the first century, this library, famed across the world, possessed anywhere from 400,000 to 700,000 handwritten scrolls. A massive library for the, that, that time. And so because of Apollos' background, being an Alexandrian, Alex, uh, Apollos was well-trained in the art of rhetoric and reason. Look at how Luke describes him here in the text. He describes him as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Somehow, along the way, we're not sure, Luke doesn't tell us, somehow Apollos was instructed in the gospel though we're not entirely sure where or how or, or who told them, but the gospel probably arrived in Alexandria pretty early in the history of the church. After all, there were some Egyptians, we are told, that were at Peter's Pentecost sermon in Jerusalem, who may have then taken that gospel back with them down to the region of Alexandria. Also, Eusebius, the church historian, recorded that Mark, the evangelist, the guy who wrote Mark's gospel, took the gospel to Alexandria as a missionary in AD 40, where he was later martyred. So the gospel gets to the region of Alexandria pretty quickly. So, however he came to hear the gospel, Apollos, we see, becomes a zealous preacher and evangelist. He was, Luke says, fervent in spirit. And Luke also says that he spoke and taught carefully the things concerning Jesus. But there was a gap in Apollos' teaching where Luke tells us that he knew only the baptism of John. So the question then is, is Apollos converted? 
as, as we pick up with him here doing ministry in Ephesus, is, is Apollos a Christian at this moment? And Luke indicates that Apollos is a converted, born-again Christian. He is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he introduces us to Apollos, but as you maybe picked up on, his introduction of Apollos is very differently, very different than the 12 men that are going to be connected to John's baptism that we'll talk about later. And there are a few reasons that I think the text gives us for how do we know that Apollos really is converted? How do we know that he's a Christian at this moment, even though he has some errors? Well, first, Luke emphasizes the accuracy of Apollos' teaching. He's competent in the scriptures. He's been taught the way of the Lord. He's teaching accurately the way of Jesus, Luke says, except on one point, and that point is the point of baptism. Secondly, some think it's best in this passage to translate the phrase fervent in spirit that Luke uses as fervent in the spirit, suggesting that Luke is not just talking about his zeal in his preaching, but also his possession of the Holy Spirit. And third, Luke doesn't tell us of Apollos getting baptized in Jesus' name or receiving the Holy Spirit like the 12 men later in Ephesus will, indicating that Apollos is in need of correction, not in need of conversion. So what's the source? What is Apollos' error that needs correction? Well, it's, it's unclear, but it seems to have involved the issue of baptism. Perhaps Apollos wasn't emphasizing its importance, or maybe he had failed to update John's baptism with the, the updated ideas of the Messianic era of repentance and faith in Jesus. We're not sure. Whatever the era error, Apollos is a converted Christian who needs some correction in his teaching. He is in the faith, Apollos. He's in the faith, but he has some sloppy theology that needs tidying up a bit. And so I think Apollos illustrates for us an important category as we try to make sense out of the conversion confusion of our day and of our locale, that you can be a Christian and have erroneous gaps of knowledge and teaching. Just because a Christian has some bad theology doesn't mean they lack conversion. After all, if we're honest, every one of us have gaps in our theology. If not in our, our intellectual constructs of the, that teaching, but definitely in its application, in our practice of our theology, we are woefully deficient. So we must continue to grow as Christians. We want to have our minds constantly being shaped by God's word, but praise be to God that we are not saved by pristine theology. We are saved by grace through faith. So thus, I think we ought to be a little more cautious and humble when we begin to accuse other people of phony conversions, just because they may have some even quite serious theological errors in their thinking. It requires wisdom here. And as I look around the church today, I see a lot of errors in the American church that greatly concern me, errors in which I will largely spend the rest of my life trying to correct from God's word. Things like a, a rejection of God's sovereignty, believing that you can't lose your salvation, 
people who may question the authority of Scripture to the baptism of infants to the, I think, uh, often dangerous practice of the spiritual gifts in the church to a rejection of biblical manhood and womanhood in so many churches and just to the the foolhardy practices of the seeker-friendly movement. And there can be, I can give you more, right, of, of areas in which I'm concerned about with the church today. And as you can see, there are many of those errors that burden me, but I will, will happily spend the rest of my life trying to, to seek and correct those errors with the scriptures, but it's something altogether different. This is what I think people do, intensified by our social media age, is, is they instead stand up and are a bit arrogant and a bit prideful and say, well, I have the perfect theology. No one else does. And if you disagree with me, then you are a heretic on your way to hell. Hashtag cursed, right? Or condemned, right? And so this is what people do. They, they tend to just blanketly condemn people even if there are some errors in their theological thinking. I think we have to exercise a lot more humility and patience than that. That while at the same time we take sound doctrine seriously, we don't ease off of it. It's important to talk about these issues. It's important to consult the scriptures and to teach them faithfully and accurately. But we have to have a category in our thinking, in our mind, that there are converted Christians who just have major theological deficiencies, major gaps in biblical knowledge and the like. That was where Apollos was. And praise be to God that God uses those with defective theology for his glory. God was using Apollos in Ephesus before Priscilla and Aquila corrected him. The late J.I. Packer, who recently went home to be with the Lord, and many of you have been benefited by his writings over the years, he commented on how God is so gracious to bless the ounce of truth even among a ton of error. Here's what, what Packer wrote. He said, yet anyone who deals with souls will again and again be amazed at the gracious generosity with which God blesses to needy ones what looks to us like a very tiny needle of truth hidden amid whole haystacks of mental error. You see, when we find haystacks of error in a believer's life, I think we should follow the example of Priscilla and Aquila laid out for us in Acts 18. We, we pull them aside and we privately, we privately try to, to teach and explain the way of God more accurately. We do that with humility, with patience. Priscilla and Aquila had the courage to correct Apollos, who was an incredibly gifted teacher. And Apollos had all the humility to heed their counsel, to heed their correction, and adjust accordingly. What amazing it is. How, how rare it is today to see the courage of people to offer this sort of gentle and loving correction to a brother or sister in error. How much rarer it is for a gifted and successful Christian teacher or leader to actually receive that correction with humility and listen. In the case of Apollos, we see, we see both. The teachability, I think, is one of the most barren of spiritual fruits in the Christian church today. Perhaps nothing reveals the state of our hearts more clearly than the gift of gentle correction from others. If you buck up in pride and 
begin to combat and get defensive. That's indication of your heart. It's indication that you, you aren't humble, but that there's pride looking in your heart. The humble we see are like Apollos here. They understand that there might be some areas where I'm majorly off, where I need to be corrected by God's word and through the counsel of believers who can show me the word of God more accurately. And so they listen. They examine the word. They grow. They change. They repent. And so that's what we see happens. After the correction, we see that Apollos' ministry begins to flourish even more as he receives the, the full support of the church to go to Achaia. And he, his ministry there was successful not only in building up believers, but he continues to evangelize in power to the Jews. I think Apollos illustrates that converted Christians can have major theological errors, but but Apollos also illustrates for us the gift of discipleship, the gift of correction, the gift of theological training. These are necessary and, and helpful. There are still a lot of people that, that think that biblical and theological training is just unnecessary for Christian leaders and, and for Christians who are engaged in ministry. But Apollos shows us that such training and tightening up of our loose theology will make us more effective as ministers of the gospel, not less. Theological education is a gift, whether it happens in the local church or whether it happens in a formal setting like a seminary, it is a gift. We should seek to grow in sound doctrine. And for those Christians who are in error, we should lovingly and privately, like Priscilla and Aquila, we have to learn the art of gentle, private, and loving correction. So let's look at another case. Apollos was a converted Christian who needed correction, who needed teaching, who needed further discipleship. But secondly, here we see unconverted Christians, they need the gospel. And of course, I put the word Christian here in quotes on purpose because they're they're not actually Christians. There exists a category of people that might appear to be like disciples of Jesus, but they actually don't know the gospel and they haven't been converted. So we pick back up with Paul in Acts chapter 19. And as Paul makes his way to Ephesus, we see that he encounters some disciples. Now that's what they first appear to Paul. They seem like disciples as he begins to have a conversation with them. But, but however, appearances can be deceiving. And as Paul meets them, Paul begins to probe them with some careful questions. And you can almost see that Paul gets increasingly more concerned as he begins this conversation with these so-called disciples. Now, while Apollos had some gaps in his theology that needed some fine-tuning and some filling, we see that here, these are people who, who don't know the gospel at all. Some people try to use this passage here of these 12 men in, in Ephesus as justification for every Christian needs to have a second experience, a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. That there are those within the charismatic movement who would say that you need to have a second experience after saving faith, a second experience in which you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and this event is marked by the speaking in tongues. See, Acts chapter 19 proves it. 
But that is a gross misreading and mishandling of this text, as all evidence points to the fact that these 12 Ephesian men are clearly unconverted. Clearly unconverted. Look, first, first look, just look at Paul's initial question. Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the assumption lurking beneath that question is Paul's expectation that belief in Jesus and the arrival of the Holy Spirit happens at the same time. His, his assumption is that's normal Christianity. You believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. So the New Testament constantly shows us that this is the case, that every believer in Jesus Christ is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole litany of texts I could take you to. Let me just share with you one from Romans chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul writes, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you are a believer in Christ, you've repented. If you put your faith in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. There is no biblical category of person who is a Christian without the Holy Spirit. It doesn't exist. In fact, the scriptures insist that if you are a Christian, if you are regenerated, if you are converted, if you are born again, if you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then you in fact possess the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament even goes beyond that. The New Testament would say that you can't even become a Christian without the aid and the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart. So the men reply to Paul's question, and as they do, they confess their ignorance. We've never heard of this Holy Spirit. Of course, that raises a red flag as Paul is talking to them, leading to a further question, this time about baptism. And as Paul continues to talk with these so-called disciples, he begins to realize that these are followers of John the Baptist who miss Jesus entirely and who know nothing about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And not only that, but they're not even very good followers of John the Baptist because John the Baptist did teach about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So these 12 men are in some sort of strange time warp a vacuum, if you will. They were followers of John who awaited the Jewish Messiah. Somehow they've now ended up in Ephesus and the news of the gospel hadn't come to them yet. They just hadn't heard. They, they were ignorant. They didn't know anything about Jesus. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They had yet to believe in any of this. They are unconverted, unconverted. They haven't heard the gospel. So Paul explains to them who the Messiah is. The Messiah is Jesus. You don't need to be baptized in John's name. You need to be baptized in Jesus's name. And so the men, upon hearing the true gospel for the first time, they believe and they are baptized in the name of Jesus. And then Paul lays his hands upon them. These men receive the Holy Spirit. And then when this Holy Spirit comes, it's manifested in the speaking of tongues and prophecies, not because that is the normal occurrence every time believe. Every, every time someone believes and receives the Holy Spirit, but to make it really clear to the men as well to, to us what sort of disciples they were. They weren't Christians before Paul got to them and shared the gospel. Whatever disciples they were, they weren't Christians until Paul shared the gospel. So the conversion of these men marks the beginning of a lengthy stay for the Apostle Paul 
in the city of Ephesus, where eventually we, we see the whole region begins to hear about the gospel of Jesus and all of Asia Minor. So these 12 men, I think, are important for us as we think about this theme of conversion confusion. Here are 12 Ephesian men who demonstrate that you can appear to be a disciple, that you can be quite religious, quite moral, quite devoted, and yet not converted. There are many religious people today who are in churches and not converted. They are devoted to religious duty. They live a moral life. They're they're interested in helping their community and doing good deeds, but yet they know nothing of God's grace in Jesus Christ. They're in some sort of strange warp where they've just become oblivious to the gospel. Often these people are no different than, than Pharisees who see and attack Jesus all throughout his ministry. So I think we have to heed the warning of God's word, particularly here from from Acts chapter 19, that there is a possibility of people being spiritually deceived. That there are those who superficially attach themselves to the church who actually have no share in the inheritance of grace given to us in the gospel. And that leads to some important questions the biggest of which is the one I want to raise for us as we wrestle with the conversion confusion of our day. And the question is this, how do we discern then if someone is merely immature in need of correction or whether they're deceived and they're unconverted? How do we, how do we know if we're dealing with an Apollos who, who needs to be corrected more accurately in the way of the Lord versus these 12 Ephesian men who clearly had missed the gospel? That's a hard question. That's a question I want to help us think through. How do we recognize when we're dealing with a professed Christian who needs correction or an unconverted person who needs conversion? So this is the sort of question that we as elders of Redemption Church, that we we actually think about a good deal. Indeed, it's a huge question when it comes to the ministry of the care of souls But I I think this is an important question, not just for pastors and elders, but this is is an important question for you. Because I suspect that that you have family members and friends, maybe even children who profess Christ, but yet nevertheless your heart is burdened for their souls. You sense that they, they might be spiritually deceived. You're concerned about whether they've, they've know, really know the Lord and if they really have experienced the, the gift of the, the Holy Spirit awakening them unto salvation. And so you're, you're concerned for them. You're burdened by them. You look upon their life and there doesn't seem to be a, a permanent change in their life and you're concerned about their salvation. And so because we live in the Bible Belt and because we live in this era of conversion confusion, it often means we just end up saying nothing at all. And I could preach, I think, several sermons expounding upon the care of souls, but let me, let me, for the sake of time, give you three things here to keep in mind as you're wrestling over this question, how do we discern if someone is merely immature or unconverted? First, remember that you are not God. I think this is important. Remember that you are not God. We have to have humility and gentleness as we speak to these so-called Christians who are burdened upon our hearts. 
we can't make any sort of final pronouncement upon anyone's soul. Only God knows people's hearts. And we know that God will do what is right. He will do what is just at his final judgment. He will judge rightly at the end of the age. And so there is a fixed line in heaven between the unconverted and the Christian. But that is a line that is hard sometimes for us to discern with any degree of certainty. So we have to tread carefully, I think, even as we ask this question. It's an important question to ask. I think we ought to raise it because so many people aren't even raising it. But even as we do, we have to be careful. We are saved by faith alone. And even though God's desire for us as Christians is for us to grow in holiness and maturity, there will be many immature believers who enter into the kingdom of God. Weak and frail sheep who have foolishly squandered their lives by not taking up holiness and growth in Christ. So first, we have to be very careful, I think. We have to be very cautious as we raise this question. And we have to rest that ultimately God alone knows people's hearts. So a second question I think that we can ask as we're trying to understand where people are is we kind of do what Paul does. And we ask the question, can they communicate the gospel accurately? Can they, can they tell me what the gospel is? This is a clear difference between Apollos and the Ephesian men that Paul's ministering to. Apollos had errors, but Luke is pretty clear. He communicated the gospel accurately. He knew the gospel. He was teaching and preaching the gospel, even if he did have a few errors along the way. The 12 men that Paul deals with here at the beginning of Acts 19, they don't even know of the Holy Spirit. They don't even know that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't know any of that. So as we engage in conversations with others, I think we have to imitate Paul's use of careful questions. We have to ask questions like, well, what, what do you think it means? to be a disciple of Jesus? Or how does, how does a person become a Christian anyway? Or why, why do we need salvation? Or questions like, who, who is Jesus? Those sorts of questions are sometimes the best way to begin to uncover what's going on in the heart of someone that we're concerned with. Utilize those good questions. You see, a good question is like a shovel that uncovers the um, compacted soil on top of the human heart. Because questions have a way of disarming people, and it prevents you from coming across as accusatory or, or even aggressive, even by trying to raise some of these questions. So, so don't start, of course, spitting off rapid-fire questions like a machine gun, so much so that the other person begins to feel like they're under a police interrogation, right? That's, that's not helpful to them. But if you learn, I think all this is something we as Christians need to learn to do with one another, let alone with people that don't know the Lord or we suspect might not know the Lord. We have to learn to initiate and sustain gospel conversations. And through a conversation with somebody about the Lord, about the scriptures, about what it means to be a Christian, you're going to be able to discern with the help of the Holy Spirit, whether I'm talking with someone here who just has errors in their lives because they haven't been discipled and they're immature in their faith, or if they're just lost and they can't, they don't even know the gospel. So I think we have to be slow to speak and quick to listen in the Christian life, particularly as we're trying to help those that we're most burdened by. Notice that in both instances here, 
whether it's dealing with Apollos or, or whether it's dealing with these 12 Ephesian men, both situations involve careful listening before speaking. So Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside after hearing him teach. They listened and they began to hear. There's something that just doesn't quite sound right that needs to be corrected. They listened, then they pulled Apollos aside and corrected him. And Paul does something similar. He asked questions and he listened to these so-called disciples before he began to realize that they were lost and needed the gospel. So if you are burdened for a friend in your life, or if you're burdened with a, a family member, perhaps cultivating conversations like this and listening carefully to their answers is the best first step to begin to minister to those whom you are concerned for. But yet as you are listening to people talk about the gospel, you're not simply listening for the regurgitation of the right facts about the gospel. I mean, we want to make sure the basic content of the gospel is there, right? That if you, if you confess your sin before the Lord and repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you're forgiven of your sins and have eternal life. Yes, all that's true, but you're actually listening for a little bit more than that. You're listening, does this person have a, a sense of the beauty and the glory of this gospel that they're talking about? Does there seem in their life to be an, an ownership that they are a sinner and that they need to confess their sin to the Lord, that they need God's grace? When, when they talk about Jesus, does gratitude just seem to drip from their lips and their language? And, and does the love of Christ begin to shine from their face when they talk about Jesus as their Savior? As Jonathan Edwards would say, do they have just merely the idea or the notion that, that honey is sweet, or have they tasted the sweetness for themselves? Is their knowledge of salvation something kind of distant and cold and unexperienced, or have they plopped the honeycomb of salvation into their mouths for themselves, and they know how sweet and wonderful the promises found in the Lord Jesus Christ truly are? You're listening for that. See if they can help explain and articulate the gospel. Thirdly, consider the evidence over time of the workings of the Holy Spirit. As we think about those, are they immature or unconverted? You want to look over time and see if you can identify workings of the Holy Spirit. Christian practice is a reliable guide to demonstrating the inward workings of the Holy Spirit. Does this person repent of sin? Are they growing in holiness? Do they long to please the Lord with their life? Do they love the saints? Are they, have they committed themselves to other believers and serving them within the context of the local church? You see, we aren't the first Christians to have to think through these issues of conversion confusion. England in the 17th century had similar challenges because if you were an Englishman in the 17th century, every citizen of England belonged to the church the state church. But the Puritans became increasingly concerned for their countrymen's soul and whether these churches, these church-going folks that they knew of, their neighbors, whether they actually were converted, whether they actually knew the gospel, whether they really had been saved by Christ. So Joseph Aileen, he's a, a Puritan minister. He wrote a, a powerful appeal to his own generation called An Alarm to the Unconverted. It's a series of 
evangel- uh, evangelistic messages that he makes to his countrymen. And, and it's a bold but tender warning for the people of England in the 17th century to examine their hearts and to see whether they truly have been converted to Christ or if their Christianity was merely cultural. In one section, Aileen lists 12 marks of the unconverted, which I think are just as relevant for the Bible Belt as they were for Stuart, England. So here they are in my own updated version of them, Joseph Aileen's 12 signs, 12 indication, 12 marks of someone who's unconverted. It says, first, there is a willful ignorance of God's word. A willful ignorance. I don't know what God's word says, and I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I don't want anybody to teach it to me. I want to be oblivious and ignorant. I have no interest whatsoever in hearing what the Bible has to say on the matter. A willful ignorance of God's word. The first. Second, it says half-hearted devotion to Christ. Half-hearted devotion. They're not really serious about Jesus. He's just kind of something they do on Sundays with their families so they can all get together and eat lunch afterwards. There's, there's really no seriousness about discipleship. Their, their devotion to Jesus is largely half-hearted, kind of apathetic. Thirdly, he says, there's formal religious duty. People are going to church. They're serving in the church, not because they actually love the Lord and want to serve him, but they're kind of going through their formal religious duty thinking that by their works, they're actually earning up points in heaven or something like that. That's a sign that someone may be unconverted. Fourthly, he says, performing holy duties with carnal motives. In other words, he's saying that you can go about doing all the right things in the Christian life, but you're not doing them because you love God and because he's your savior and because he saved you by his grace, but you're doing them to impress the people you go to church with. You're doing them because it makes you look self-righteous before the, the watching world. And so you're not pursuing God for God's sake. You're pursuing holy duties with carnal motives. It's another sign, Aileen says. The next one he says is, is trusting in your own righteousness instead of Jesus's righteousness. This is what the, the grave error of the Pharisees made. That, that instead of thinking that I am a sinner who needs the righteousness of another imputed to me by faith in Jesus Christ, I'm instead, I'm going to trust what I'm able to do. And I'm going to go and live the Christian life. I'm going to do good things. I'll give my money. I'll help as many people as I can, trusting that I'll build up enough points so that God will, of course, let me in to heaven. And of course, that's not the way the gospel works. We are far too sinful to earn our way into heaven. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And the only hope we have is that we are made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ by receiving a righteousness, not that we earn, but a righteousness given to us by God's Son. Another one he says is secretly loathing God's commands and word. Secretly loathing it. You're doing it, you're obeying it, but you think to your head, man, God's idea of sexual purity is dumb as you do it. You're rejecting, you're recoiling under your breath and your obedience, you're muttering against God's commands and laws, and you don't see them as something that is good and wonderful and sweet and profitable and protective of you, but you scorn them secretly loathing what God's word says you must do as a believer. Another one he says is only wanting enough Jesus to get you out of hell. I only want enough Jesus in my life. I want to get my get out of hell free card 
as a young person and then go and do whatever it is I want. There's no sense of, of wanting to know the Lord with greater intimacy and depth. I only want enough Jesus to get me out of hell. Here's another one. A love for the world above Christ. Instead of loving Jesus as my treasure, as that pearl of great price, I've got things in the world that I love more than him. And so I reject Jesus and I largely take up this accumulation of stuff and desires and pleasures because that's where my love is, not Jesus. Aileen says that's a sign that you may be unconverted. Another one he says, I've lost and count at this point, hatred and bitterness towards those who have wronged you. This unforgiveness, this bitterness in the heart towards another person, towards another believer, that this is an indication that the love of God has not taken up residence in your heart and in your life. That when that sort of hatred and animosity and bitterness engulfs you, there's an indication that perhaps you haven't tasted the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and are able to give that love to others. Another thing he says is unmortified pride. Being proud, being arrogant, being self-righteous, being all about yourself and not putting it to death, but rather embracing it and persisting in it. Eleventh, he says, loving the pleasures of the flesh, loving sensuality, the desires of the flesh. And then finally, he says, finding security in your possessions instead of God. Finding security, not that your name is written in the book of life, but finding security in your net worth, in your home, and your vehicles, and all that you've been able to accumulate in terms of the worldly possessions. I think those 12 signs, 12 marks of someone who's unconverted are just as relevant today as they were to the 17th century. And so I think we must all pause and examine our own hearts and we have to take the log out of our own eye before we ever try to help take the speck out of our brother's eye. And so as Christians, I think we have to devote ourselves to self-examination. And even through that 12-item list that we just went through, if there are enough of them that begin to sound like you inwardly in your heart, I think you ought to be concerned. You ought to go to the Lord. You ought to talk to an elder or a pastor or another church member about the state of your soul. And we must ensure, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, as we encounter the truth of God's word, that we are in fact born from above. And then and only then can we help those who are immature and who are in need of correction. We help them. We make disciples. We help them grow. And, and those who are deceived, our friends and family that we're burdened by, who profess Christ but who may be unconverted, to them we are lovingly bold. We engage in those conversations. We speak both with tenderness and with urgency. And we say to them, awake, awake, O sinner. See your dire state before God. And so run to Christ Jesus, who will save you. Flee and run to the narrow gate that leads to life. We urge them to find refuge in Jesus alone. So may the Holy Spirit help us. May he make clear the confusion and deception that gripped the heart of so many, particularly here in the Bible Belt. 
Because it is far better for God to shatter the delusion of sinners today by our loving intervention for their good than for them to one day stand before the judge at the end of their lives and be shocked when they hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. See, in our age of conversion, confusion, wrought by decades of cultural Christianity, may Christ make clear the state of our souls for his glory and for the salvation of sinners. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, Lord, for those in this room who may very well be sensing the convicting work of your spirits. And Lord, your spirit may be showing them that they may in fact not be born again. Father, if that's the case, I pray that they would have the the courage and the humility to come talk to an elder in our church, another member about the state of their soul, and Lord, that they would not be able to rest until you can give them security and assurance, Lord, that they know you and that you have saved them by your grace. Father, we know that there are so many who are confused about these matters, about what the gospel is, about who, what it means to be a Christian. Father, I pray that in Redemption Church that we strive for clarity on these matters because they are not trivial. Eternity is at stake. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that as we proclaim the gospel in a city and in a culture that is so very confused about what it means to be converted, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have salvation. Father, I pray that we would cut through the awkwardness or that we wouldn't let the tension prevent us from speaking and raising questions and love and and asking people that we're burdened for. Lord, I know that there are many in this room who are burdened for family members, for sons and daughters. For neighbors, Lord, help us to speak. Let us not be too timid and cowardly out of fear of offense. May we speak the hope of Christ in love and in patience. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would save those who are lost, those who may be here and in an unconverted state, but we also pray for those in our community that we would proclaim the gospel to them. And Lord, that you might bring about revival and renewal and awakening within our city as people come to true salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.